time and still have a little ways to go. And you will, after this morning, I trust, understand why the sequence is what it is that we are following. John, the third chapter, we will begin reading now in verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. John, chapter 3, verse 22 through verse 36. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Aon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It was inevitable, I suppose, that sooner or later, as Jesus' ministry was beginning now to enlarge, that certain questions would be raised among the disciples of John the Baptist. You will notice that in our text, Jesus now leaves Jerusalem, where the prior verses have taken place, his discussion by night with Nicodemus, and he goes out into what is called the land of Judea, or perhaps more accurately, the countryside of Judea. And you'll notice something else, that he begins to baptize. Now, he does not baptize himself personally. That is, he is not the baptizer directly. But he baptizes, as chapter 4 and verse 2 makes it plain, through his disciples. But notice that there is something peculiar about Jesus. None of the other of John's disciples have themselves begun to baptize as John was baptizing. Now, John baptized personally. He baptized Jesus. Now, Jesus' disciples began, through the authority of their Lord and Master, to now begin to baptize And we learn from the description given in verse 23 that they are in the same general location as John the Baptist. They are in this particular place, it says, because there was much water there. I'd like to remind my Presbyterian friends that uh, 
if sprinkling was the mode of baptism, you didn't need much water. But if you baptize by immersion, then it makes sense that you're going to go somewhere where there is, in fact, much water. Now, there is an important historical fact noted here in verse 24. You may not have even noticed it as we read our text, but it is this little statement for John, this is John the Baptist, was not yet cast into prison. Now, you might think about that a minute. What is peculiar about this is that um, John, the apostle who writes the Gospel of John, never even mentions John being cast into prison. It is one of those little hints that lead us to believe that John the Apostle who wrote this expected his readers to have had an acquaintance with the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is one of the hints. Because in the synoptic Gospels, Jesus' public ministry does not begin until John the Baptist is cast into prison. Did you, you ever thought of that? You ever noticed that? Look, look in Mark. Let's take him for an example. Both Matthew and Mark point this out. But in Mark 1, verse 14. Notice that in... Say verses 9, 10, 11, we have the baptism of Jesus. Then in verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1, we have the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And then verse 14, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Both Matthew and Mark make a note that Jesus' ministry did not begin until after John was put into prison and that Jesus' earthly ministry, his public ministry, began in Galilee. John is giving us information that the synoptics don't give us. He is wanting us to realize that what he is describing is a Judean ministry of Christ. Not up north in Galilee, but a ministry that took place down in Judea around Jerusalem and that took place prior to his Galilean ministry. You see why John would insert that? Because if you didn't know that, you would be reading John's gospel and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. The Synoptic Gospels tells us that Jesus' ministry was in Galilee and it started after the imprisonment of John. And here John is describing to us a ministry that takes place in Judea, around the area of Jerusalem. Uh, You know, how does this all fit together? This little verse explains it. And it is one of those clues that John expected you to have some knowledge of Matthew, Mark, and Luke before you read his Gospel. That you would need to know that what he is describing in this early trip to Jerusalem, the very first Passover that Jesus visited the temple there, took place actually before the beginning of his Galilean ministry up north. In fact, as we'll see in chapter 4 of John, Jesus' encounter with the woman of the well at the well in Samaria takes place as Jesus is leaving Judea and traveling back north to Galilee to commence what we have in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All right? So, in other words, at this very early stage of things, when Jesus and John are both in the picture, now John the Baptist, as the note mentions, is about to be providentially, by God, taken out of the picture. 
John's going to be arrested. John's going to be thrown in prison. He's eventually going to be martyred there. John is going to be removed from the scene. But what John the Apostle is describing to us here in his gospel is an early stage of the game, so to speak, when Jesus and John are both operative. And they're not only both operating, but they're operating basically in the same area of the land over here by the Jordan River down in Judea. And so they're almost side by side, probably separated only by a few miles. And John is baptizing over here, and Jesus and his disciples, and through his disciples, might be better put, is baptizing up the road a little piece. And we learn from John's disciples that, as we might expect, inevitably, there's going to be a little bit of envy. A little bit of jealousy, not for themselves, but for their master. A little envy towards Christ for the fact that so many are now flocking to him rather than to their leader, John the Baptist. These things, of course, inevitably come about. You will notice their assertions down here in verse 26. They say to John, John the Baptist, I realize for you who may not be familiar with the New Testament, this is sort of confusing. We are in the Gospel of John, and we're talking about a John who is not the John that wrote the Gospel of John. He's John the Baptist. There is two Johns here, so try to keep them straight. I'll try to help you in that regard. These are the disciples of John the Baptist who come to John in verse 26, and they say, wait a minute. He came to you. He was with you. Uh, you baptized him. You, you bore witness of him. You see, everything they're saying is leading up to the fact that, John, you are greater than he is. I mean, after all, he came to you. You didn't go to him. He was baptized by you. You weren't baptized by him. You bore witness of him, not vice versa. You may think back to the days of Elijah, the prophet in Elisha, who succeeded him. Of course, the one who comes first is considered to be the greater of the two. And so the disciples of John the Baptist are basically saying, well, look, here's this Johnny come lately. He's just sort of appeared on the scene, and he's sort of taken over the show here. In fact, notice the hyperbole of how they speak here in the last part of verse 26. They say, and all men come to him. Everybody's going to him. Well, of course, everybody wasn't going to him. But it seems so to John's disciples. In other words... John, you're the important one. You're the first one on the scene, and you're the one who has sort of authenticated his ministry. And now it seems to us as if you're sort of getting the short end of the stick. Why, people are now flocking to Jesus to be baptized rather than coming to you. Well, if you've never before appreciated the character of John the Baptist, and I mean by character his inner workings, his inner thoughts, what made him tick. I hope by the time we are through this morning that you will have a new appreciation for John the Baptist. Jesus had a great appreciation for him. He said none born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. Now, in the context, it's clear that he meant they were not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But there is this sense, isn't it, when Jesus taught his disciples about what constituted true greatness you remember what he said? It's the humble man in his kingdom who is the great man. I believe you will see this as we go on in studying the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus, the Messiah. We might begin by asking the question, what do you suppose made John so great? Well, we could chalk it up 
to just an accident of history. John just happened to be the prophet that was on the scene when the Messiah came on the scene. And that is true. I believe that's what Jesus meant. In the Gospel of Luke, when he says there's not one greater than John the Baptist, in the context, he has been talking about great prophets. Of all the prophets, there's not one greater than John the Baptist. He is the greatest of the prophets in that no other prophet pointed men so clearly as John did to the Messiah. And that was the role of all the prophets, to point them ahead to the coming of the promised one. And none did it so precisely and clearly because of his place in history as did John the Baptist. But I don't believe that's all that Jesus meant. What made John so great? Well, he knew his calling. We might put it in these words, although these words are not particularly politically correct in our day. We might phrase it like this. John knew his place. You see, we don't like those words because we live in a culture that we've been taught that all men are created equal and so forth. Well, that's really a bunch of hooey, you understand. All men aren't created equal. Under the eyes of the law, they are to be deemed equal. That's really what our founding fathers had in mind. But we recognize that, no, uh, you know, some folks are a little more equal than others. That Some folks were born with a silver spoon in their mouth instead of a wooden spoon in their mouth. Some folks got a name like Vanderbilt, you know, instead of Webb. You know, it makes a little bit of difference. Some folks are born good-looking. Others are born like y'all. You know, other, some are born talented and others are not. I mean, that's, that's really a bunch of junk. No, not all men are created equal. They're not exactly the same. And so there are in other cultures around the, the earth, the, the idea of knowing your place, certainly the caste system over in India is set up on that scheme that if you're in a particular caste, in a particular level of society, you don't go out of that level of society. You don't hobnob with those that don't belong to your caste, whether above you or below you. It's very stratified. Just had uh, one of Linda's uncles and cousins came through this week, and uh, her cousin was telling me about some uh, Indians from India over yonder who they brought over to work in the shipyards down in New Orleans, and uh, that there were, oh, I don't know, several, a whole bunch of these guys they brought over from India, but one guy in particular, he was supposed to be the boss of the others, and he never would socialize with any of the others and so forth. And they were asking him why. And he said, well, this is just the way it is in India. The boss does not socialize with the worker. There is that very distinct and rigid system of knowing your place. Well, we Americans, of course, don't much like that. And it's not politically correct to say it. To stay in your place. But may I say very reverently and very accurately, John knew his place. And I mean by that simply that he knew his role. He knew his calling. He knew what it was that he was to fulfill. Now you notice that John begins to explain this in verse 27 with these words, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Now, that's sort of a universal statement. John, of course, is going to apply it to his own situation. But as one man remarked, that in a theistic universe, that is, if you believe in a universe that is governed by God rather than by chance or just sheer mechanics, then you must agree with this statement, that a man can receive nothing 
but what is given him from God. We talked about the situation of your birth a moment ago. Well, who decided that you would be born in middle-class America with, with white skin, of Protestant parents? Most of you were born into that situation. Now, who decided that? Did you, before you were born, now that's the way the Mormons would explain it, that all of us had a pre-existence, you know, and we, we, depending on how good we were in the pre-existence, we got to pick who our parents would be in the situation into which we were born in this life. That's a bunch of nonsense. The fact is, is that none of us decided who would be our parents, what would be our genetic makeup, how many talents we would have, how much resources and wealth would be at our disposal, all of those things came to us purely, as we say, by accident. But if we believe in a theistic universe, we know these were not accidents at all. This was, in fact, the gifts of God to us. I mean, the fact that I was born so handsome, I realized is God's gift. I mean, you know, I speak facetiously. But but you understand, yes, I knew I'd get an amen on that. You understand, but you understand what I'm saying. That every good thing that you have comes to you from above. Now that's what John is saying, and that is a truism that just falls out of believing in a God who runs the universe. And it is a truism, a maxim, that is just understood as being so from one end of the Bible to the other. In fact, a little later in John 19, if you'll turn there just a moment, Jesus standing before Pilate, John 19, verse 10, Pilate tries to pull the old pot-bellied southern sheriff approach. Boy, don't you know who I am? Boy, don't you know the power I've got? Listen to Pilate, John 19, verse 10, Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Don't you realize who I am? And Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. The only reason you're standing where you're standing is because God put you there. So don't stand there before me and strut and boast and act in your proud arrogance as if you are really something because of your position. Remember this, God alone puts men where they are. A little later, Paul will write to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. A lot of problems in the church at Corinth. Divisions, rivalries, arguing about, of all things, uh, who baptized them. <laughs> Somehow seeing some status in the fact that if they had one of the apostles or, you know... I was baptized by Peter, I was baptized by Paul, that sort of thing, that that somehow gave them some statue in the sight of God. And Paul has a remedy, he has an antidote for this proud, boastful way of thinking. It's found in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where we read this question, For who maketh thee to differ from another? Now here's a guy with white skin, here's a guy with black skin, who made the difference? Here's a guy rich, here's a guy poor, who made the difference? Here's a guy with lots of talent, a guy with no talent. Who, who gave this fella? Do you, do you see the sense? We like to think that, well, we did. We, you know, we're the ones. It's a rhetorical question. Paul expects you and I to be smart enough to understand that the answer is God. Sort of like 
the little boy that went to Sunday school and they were asking him, you know, about something about the name of so-and-so. And he says, well, I don't know, but the answer is God. I mean, it's always the answer. And that's what Paul expects us to know. We're to know that it's God that makes us a differ. And then the next question, just as piercing as the first, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? What do you have that wasn't given to you? Now, we like to think that we live in a country of self-made men. You know, we make our own luck here in America. We pulled ourselves out of the slime by our bootstraps. You know, we, we lifted ourselves out of poverty and, you know, we're really something. Oh, my friend, don't you know, you who think you're self-made men, slap you down in the middle of Bangladesh and let's see you pull yourself out of poverty. You say, well, it's because I've worked so hard. My friend, you can go to the third world and you can find people breaking their back seven days a week, 12 hours, 14 hours a day in grueling poverty, working far harder than you or I ever thought about working and have nothing to show for it. Far more talented than we, far smarter than we, and yet because of the circumstances in which they find themselves, there is no escape. You cannot, as Jesus told his disciples, you better work and you better walk while it's light because when the sun goes down, you can't make your own light. We like to think that we can make our own luck. And we really don't even give thought to the fact that the very energy that we put into our jobs, the very brain that we use to perform certain tasks is all given to us from above. The smarts was given if you got some. The talent was given to you. The situation, the circumstances to be even have the opportunity to succeed and prosper is given to you. But there's scads of people scattered across this planet, smarter than you, more diligent than you, who because of the circumstances in which they're placed will never succeed and never prosper. That's what Paul is pointing out. Why are you bragging about who you are and what you can do? Don't you understand? What do you have that you didn't receive? And then, of course, the corollary question, if everything you have, if you received it as a gift from above, then why are you glorying? Why are you boasting about who you are and what you can do? Why, why do you suppose that would make you better than another if it's God who has given you everything you have and everything you are. You see, this is sort of a maxim that is true, and it runs from one end of the Bible to the other. We go back here to John chapter 3. And that's what John is pointing out to his disciples, that whatever I am, every asset that I possess, every quality that I possess, every talent, every ability, every advantage, that I may have was in fact a gift to me from above. It is nothing less than a gracious, unmerited gift from the hand of my God. And so you understand by this that John is saying, I know my place. I, I'm not, uh, verse 28, you bear witness, I'm not the Christ, but I am sent before him. That was John's testimony when they came and asked him, Now, who are you? Are, are you this? Are you that? Are you that? And he says, No, I'm just the voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. I, I'm the way preparer. 
John knew who he was. He was not on earth, in other words, to see how big he could get. You know, whether he could have a megachurch. How many folks can he baptize? How many TV stations can he be on? How far can he extend his influence? They say there are three things that are the downfall of preachers, three A's, adultery, sexual misconduct, avarice, greed, money, and the third one, would it surprise you, ambition. Ambition. The desire to be somebody. Oh, you don't know how preachers have to deal with that. Oh, to be something, to be known, to be looked at as a success. Because you see, most of the time people look at us and see a bunch of useless, abject, worthless failures. And so there is in the heart of almost every preacher this this desire to be somebody. To make a name. To be big. And that's exactly what the disciples of John the Baptist are saying. He's getting bigger than you are. It ought to be you, John, that has all of these people flocking to him, not Jesus. But John saw that he had a very definite calling, a distinct role to play. He was not the Christ. He was the messenger. And the amazing thing is, is that he goes on to tell us that he is absolutely content to fulfill that role. Now that's the amazing part. A lot of us have figured out that God really does not have a great big thing for us. You know, most of us by now, we've come to that conclusion. No, we're not going to be the next Elijah, you know, performing all the miracles. And in modern terms, you know, we're probably not going to be the next Billy Graham. We won't be preaching in the stadiums and filling up, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming to hear us. Most of us have figured out in the ministry that probably we're going to live and die in a little nook or corner over here where no one has hardly ever heard of us. I mean, that is the lot of most faithful preachers of the gospel in our day, I rejoice in those who are faithful preachers of the word who are given a large ministry. I don't begrudge them that. But the fact is, in our day and time, most faithful preachers of the world, word are going to live and die in obscurity. In a little old place nobody's ever heard of. Now, everybody knows that. The hard part is to be content with that. And the amazing thing here is John not only says, I know my place, but I'm content. I'm content to have the role that God has given me. I'm pleased to be only nothing more than what God has called me to be. You see, there was another being who wanted something more. A higher seat. A higher position. That, of course, was... Satan, who was not content to be where God had placed him. But John shows none of that satanic bent here. Notice how he describes it here, and he describes it 
in the language of a wedding or of marriage. And, of course, John could not possibly use these words without expecting his hearer to sort of put some things together here, that he would know that from the Old Testament there is this picture of of God being the husband of the faithful in Israel. He, He expects his readers to know that. And we also know from the New Testament evidence that constantly permeating the New Testament is this idea of Jesus, the Messiah, being the bridegroom of the church, his bride. So, so all of this is expected by John to sort of be filtering through our minds here, that we're to sort of get this picture that, yeah, of course, this is exactly the way it is. And notice as John describes the situation in verse 29, he says, I don't have the bride. I'm not destined to have the bride. Because I'm not the bridegroom. Well, John, then what are you in this scheme of things? Well, he says I'm the, he calls it the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. Now, we in our modern day call that the best man. But in Judea, among the wedding ceremony that took place there, you had a man who was called the friend of the bridegroom, whose job basically was to see to it that the wedding went smoothly. Oftentimes, it was the responsibility of the friend of the bridegroom to go to the bride's home to conduct her and her family to the home of the bridegroom where the wedding would, in fact, take place. In other words, I think you see the symbolism here, that John the Baptist is basically saying, my role is not to marry the bride... My job is to see the bride and bridegroom married. So in other words, when his disciples have come to him saying, well, John, aren't you all upset? Because look, everybody's going to Jesus. John is saying, no, I'm not upset at all. That's exactly what my ministry is all about. That's what I intend for men to be pointed to Christ. There is evidence of an old Babylonian Sumerian custom And when I say Babylonian, Sumerian, what I mean, Middle Eastern custom, dates way, way back. The question is not the antiquity of the custom. The question is really, did it extend up until the time of John the Baptist and Jesus? But the custom from ancient Babylon, from the ancient Near East, was this, that the friend of the bridegroom, under no circumstances would ever be allowed to marry the bride. That no matter what happened to the bridegroom, the man who fulfilled the role as friend of the bridegroom was never to be allowed to marry the bride. Didn't matter if the bridegroom died, didn't matter what happened. If he fulfilled the role of the friend of the bridegroom, he was disqualifying from marrying the bride. Now, there are hints of this that extend into the biblical days. For instance, do you remember the story of Samson? Remember, Samson had uh, got engaged to this Philistine gal. And they were having the big shindig, the blowout before the days of the wedding. And you remember Samson on the way down there had seen this lion. The bees had made the honeycomb in the carcass of the lion. And so when he got down there to sort of jive with the other guys, uh, he, he says, I bet you can't figure out this riddle. Out of the strong or came forth food and out of the 
Eater came for sweetness. That was his riddle. And, of course, uh, these guys couldn't figure it out. They'd made a wager. And uh, so they finally got this little Philistine gal to whom Samson was engaged to. Samson never was real smart with the women folk. He wasn't real fast uh, on his feet when it came to dealing with women. And uh, she got him to tell her, you know, went through this whining thing. If you really love me, you'd tell me the answer to your riddle. And so he told her the answer, and she, of course, divulged it to the rest of the guys. And they figured out his riddle. And, and he has that very wonderful line, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. He uh, at least put two and two together that uh, you found it out from her. So indeed, he paid off. But a very interesting thing, Samson then, in his anger, left. And do you remember what happened to his Philistine bridegroom? His Philistine bride, she was given to another, to his companion, the scripture says, to his companion that he used as his friend. They gave his bride to the friend of the bridegroom. And that's how we're to understand then his anger when he finds this out and the retaliation that he took that even the Philistines knew you weren't supposed to give the bride to the friend of the bridegroom. Now you can go back and check me out on this at your leisure. But right now we have other fish to fry. The point being this, that John the Baptist is saying in no circumstances, regardless of what happens, my role will never be to marry the bride. The bride is not to be for me, cannot be for me. I am utterly disqualified for to fulfill my role as the friend of the bridegroom. I cannot be the one who marries the bride. My joy is fulfilled in the fact that the bride is joined to the bridegroom. And so you see, he knew his place and he knew the role that he was to fulfill. And then he also knew his limitations. That, of course, is Clint Eastwood's line out of one of the Dirty Harry movies. You know, a, a man has to know his limitations. Well, indeed he does. And John knew as we see from verse 31 to the end of the chapter, he knew his limitations. Now, it is not clear, starting in verse 31, whether it is John the Baptist speaking or whether it is John the Apostle speaking. John the Baptist clearly is speaking to verse 30. Then perhaps, starting in verse 31, this is the Apostle John's commentary. But regardless of which John it is that is speaking, you'll notice that immediately in verse 31... There is a sorting going on here into two kinds of ministry. I made a point of emphasizing this back earlier in chapter 3 in verse 12. In chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus in his discussion with Nicodemus says, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how then shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And back then I tried to draw the distinction that the contrast is between two kinds of revelation, actually. Two kinds of ministry. That revelation of God that took place on earth. Because the new birth is clearly, by Jesus, sorted into the earthly things. I mean, we would think that's a heavenly thing. But Jesus says, no, that's the earthly thing. And it's an earthly thing in that it was already foretold and prophesied by prophets on earth. And we went back and looked at some of those prophecies out of Ezekiel that spoke of this new birth. Didn't use the term birth, but it's clearly the same thing. 
Jesus is basically saying, Nicodemus, if you don't, if you don't believe my interpretation of things that have already been revealed, the revelation of God on earth through the prophets, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And what Jesus is saying is that he is about to begin another kind of revelation, not like a prophet who is on earth, who heard what he heard on earth by revelation, but Jesus constantly affirms throughout John's gospel that the things that he's speaking are things that he heard with his father when he was in heaven. Now that may not mean much to you, but what Jesus is saying is I've come to give you revelation and revelation of a higher sort, a higher kind. And here, notice... Out of the blue, this heavenly, earthly distinction is brought up once again. As a contrast between Jesus and John, showing the clear supremacy of the ministry of Jesus to that of John. If nothing else, says John, it consists in the fact of where these two men came from. John was of the earth. He was born on earth. His existence, as it were, sprang from an earthly sphere of things. But where did Jesus come from? You know, constantly he would tell them, by the way, in John's gospel, he would say, now you're of the earth, but I'm not. His origins, his existence did not spring from an earthly sphere. He came from heaven. He's the Lord from heaven sent into this earth. Do you see the distinction? John was earthly. That doesn't mean, I'll talk about the contrast of what it doesn't mean here in a minute. But it simply means that his ministry was like that of the prophets that had preceded him. Men who were good men prophesied good things, but their ministry was an earthly ministry. Jesus, on the other hand, comes with a higher form of revelation. He's from heaven. Notice, John speaks of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Secondly, notice in verse 32, And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. The testimony of Jesus was not second-hand like the prophets. They had been given their revelation, their testimony. It had been handed to them. In the case of Jesus, it was eyewitness revelation, eyewitness testimony. In fact, what other kind of testimony really is there than first-hand eyewitness testimony? testimony. These are things which Jesus knew because he was there. Oh, I wish I could get this across to you. I wished it would get a hold of you and grab you like, like like it's meant to here. Because you see, what we're not saying, it's not that the contrast here between Jesus and John is between what's right and wrong. It's not that what Jesus came to reveal was true and what John came to reveal was false. That's not it. And it's not that, well, Jesus brought us the revelation from God and John just made his up. No, no, no. That's not it. They're both true. They're both from God. The contrast is between that which is clear, precise, and distinct, and that which is prophetic and cloudy and obscure. I mean, you do know those verses in the New Testament that speak of the Old Testament prophets trying to figure out what they just prophesied. What did I say? (laughs) What did that mean? What manner of time and place? What, 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 What am I prophesying? They didn't even understand their own prophecy. 
And so they spent time studying their prophecies, trying to figure out what is the time that's being referred to. Who's the person being referred to? Their prophecy so often was cloudy and distinct and shadowy, whereas Jesus comes in his revelation is clear, distinct, and precise. The contrast is between that which is complete and that which is partial. We talked in the Sunday school class this morning how Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law and the prophets. Bringing it, as it were, to completion. That's the point that the law was imperfect, impartial in it, what it revealed. Jesus is coming to give you the final distinct word. And notice, again, it is final revelation as opposed to preliminary revelation. It's exactly that contrast that is exhibited in Hebrews 1.1. God, who spake in times past by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken by His Son. God speaks in both cases. But which has the higher supremacy? Which is more clear? Which has the higher authority? It is clearly what God has spoken by His Son. It's exactly the contrast in the parable of the householder. You know, the guy let out his vineyard, let it, let it out to some farmers. And then what did he do? He sent them his servants to go collect his rent. And they mocked them and beat them and killed them and so forth. And then he says, ah, but I'll send them a son. And they saw him coming and said, here comes the heir. Let's kill him. The vineyard will be ours. It's one thing for God to send servants. It's another thing for him to send. You see, God's servants, God's, they're a dime a dozen. God could raise up a prophet every day of the week. Twice on Sunday. But he only has one. Son, the only begotten, the one and only Son, He sent. The Son, as John has described in chapter 1, the Son in the very bosom of the Father. He, as it were, lays His head on His Father's bosom. He is intimately, more so than anyone who ever walked the earth before, He is intimately acquainted with every, shall I say, with the heart of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God thinks? Listen, Jesus. Now you say, well, but but, but the prophets, they spoke the word of God too. I know that. And what they spoke was true. But oh, my friend, the highest revelation of God that you will find. Jesus, when Philip says, show us the Father, didn't say, look at Moses and you'll see him. Look at Elijah and you'll see him. He said, Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Would you know the heart of God? Oh, my friend, it's so important that we understand this. How God thinks. What He loves. What He's like. Do we need to run from Him? Cover ourselves? Call to the rocks and hills to hide us? Well, what? Well, how do I relate to my God? How do I think? And in the parable of grace there in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and especially that parable about that lost boy. Jesus is revealing to you and I the very heart of God is how He thinks. You've got Him all wrong, He's saying to the Pharisees. You've got it all backwards. This is how God thinks. This is how God is. And how does He know? Because He's the one and only Son who lies, as it were, in the very bosom of the Father, intimately acquainted with His Father. And John gives us four distinct ways in which He's superior He says he speaks the very words of God, verse 34. The very words of God come out of his mouth. 
Number two, His works, the Spirit that He has upon Him, this anointing Spirit, it surpasses all others. The old Jews said that the prophets received the Spirit all right, but they received it in proportion to the need to fulfill their ministry. And I think there's some validity to that. And clearly when Jesus comes on the scene, He is anointed by the Spirit, except it is without measure. There is no limitation. And so His works, well, we've talked about this before, but they excel all who came before Him. I mean, we have this story in the Old Testament about a prophet that hid some prophets in a cave. And I think there's about 70 of them. They brought about 10 loaves of barley and fed the 70 and thought that was a big thing. And then Jesus, they give him five loaves and he feeds 5,000. You see what I'm saying? There's just this all-surpassing ministry of Christ. This anointing that is upon him is absolutely without measure. And then his relationship with the Father. He's the one, verse 35, the Father loves the Son. You may question whether God loves the world. You may question whether God loves you. But I tell you this, He loves His Son. If there is this infinite love that God has for His beloved Son, and then His position is above all. Verse 35, He's given all things into His hand. He's running the show. My friend, God, as it were, in the exaltation of Christ to the throne of glory, God has turned the spotlight of glory on His Son. That's what John 5 is telling us. You want to do business with God? You better go see the Son. Because you see, God doesn't do business anymore except with, through, and to, with the Son. Now that may make our Jewish friends very unhappy, but I'm sorry. That's the language of the New Testament. You want to do business with God? You want to come to God? You've got to come to Christ. You going to believe on God? You're going to have to believe on Him. That's what He said. You believe in God? Believe also in Me. You say, oh, but one day God's going to judge the world. Yeah, and John 5 tells us all judgment has been commanded and committed into the hands of the Son. Yeah, one day the dead are going to rise. Yeah, and John 5 tells us it will be the voice of the Son of God that speaks and raises them from the dead. Do you see the point that it, as, it, as it were, I, I, again, hard to illustrate these things, but it's as if God has turned the spotlight of glory on His Son. He's running the show. You're going to do business with God. You're going to have to come through Him. It is the will, says Jesus of the Father, that all men honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You see, we are called Christians not just by accident. It's a good name. Because we are all wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the crucial watershed, the continental divide that divides not just continents, but divides heaven and hell. Which side of the question you come down on, whether you truly believe. Because if he is a hoax, if he is a charlatan, if he's a liar, a deceiver... Then, my friend, if you believe on him, you're going to hell. Can I be more blunt than that? Even if he is the Son of God, but he cannot do what he says, if he cannot cleanse you and I from our sin, we're going to hell. If he cannot save us, 
then we who call ourselves Christians, and I mean really, truly in the Christian sense, I'm not just saying, well, we live in Christian America and we show up on church on Sunday morning every now and then. I'm talking about those who have banked our soul upon the veracity of Jesus Christ. If He cannot do it, if He's not who He says He was, we're going to hell. Because we have no plan B. We have no golden parachute. We have no other option if He fails. True faith hangs its soul on the veracity and the ability of Jesus Christ. John puts it another way. He says, he that receives his testimony has set his seal to this. Like the guy in the, the bureaucrat sitting back there takes the book, opens it up, and stamps, puts his stamp of approval. He has put his seal to this that God is true. And then he in 1 John 5 gives us the contrary axiom. If you don't believe what God has testified about his son, you are calling God a liar. You can't have it both ways. He's one or the other. He's either true or he's not. He's either the son of God or he's the biggest charlatan that's ever hit this planet. Hmm. But on the other hand, and this is the closing verse. If he is who he says he is. If he can give life like he says he can. And if you don't believe on him, you shall not see life. That's what he told Nicodemus. Unless man's born again, he'll not see the kingdom of heaven. You'll never see life. Life, John told us in chapter 1, in him was life. Do you hear that? In Him was life. In 1 John 5, He'll tell us, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Can it be any plainer? Can it be any simpler? Life is in Him. You got Him, you got life. You don't have Him. You say, well, I guess I'm in trouble one of these days. No, you're already in trouble. The wrath of God, he says here, abides. A better translation would be, remains on him. Do you see then that when John tells us that God loves the world, we're not to understand that the love of God is this great big blanket that just sort of covers everything. Or like the raindrops, you know, everybody standing out there gets some, you know. It's just sprinkling on everybody. It's dispersed. The love of God, as we are explaining it here, is channeled, channeled through a person. You say, how does I know that God loves the world? Look at that cross. That's what the apostles will tell you. Not look to something in here. Do you feel your heart burning, you know, and aching when you think about God? The proof that God loves the world is that he sent his son. Would you be in the love of God? Then you must get in his son. You see, it's this idea that there is this flow of love between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. There's where the love of God is being directed. And there is for you and I the offer, the free offer, to come and lay hold of Christ, to be wed to Him, to be joined to Him. My parents love my wife 
as much or more than they love me. If they had to choose at this point, I'd be scared to ask. (laughs) But why do they love me or love her? Because she's wed to me. Becoming wed to me, she now stands in that flow of love between parent and child. Becoming one with me. In the same sense, my friend, becoming one with Christ. Receiving the Son puts you in that flow of love between the Father and the Son. You're loved as the very Son of God. Can you imagine such a thing? You're loved as a child because you're joined to a child, to the very Son of God. Where are you? Where are you? There's still a question. Oh, there's a great mystery here in these words. John has said it distinctly before us. He says, uh, you know, if we're really smart, if we're really reading John correctly, we would come to this point saying, well, that's all fine and dandy, but as I read it, there'll be no one who believes on Jesus. There'll be no one in heaven. There'll be no one who avails themselves of this offer of everlasting life. That's what you ought to be thinking if you're reading John correctly at this point. Because he keeps describing man's situation like this. That he, Jesus, came to his own, but his own fell all over themselves receiving him. Received him not. Or he'll describe it like this. Light has come into darkness. And so men just ran to the light? No, men... Love, darkness, rather than light. Or or he may say it like this. He has testified. He's brought you testimony from heaven of what he has seen and what he's heard. And everybody believes this testimony? No. No man receives his testimony. You see, if we're understanding John's gospel correctly, what thought should be going through our mind is not so much how could anybody perish But how could anybody be saved? Given who he is, God from heaven, bringing truth, bringing light, and given who I am, of this earth, sinful, loving darkness, loving lies, how will there be any believe. John still hadn't told you yet. But he lets you know there are exceptions. He came into his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. John loves to do that. He loves to state this universal negative principle and then say, but look at the exceptions. And so he does it here. He bears witness of what he has seen in heaven and no man receives his testimony But he that hath received it has set his seal to this, that God is true. Yes, there are exceptions. There are wonderful, miraculous exceptions. And that's what we're to understand, that it's a miracle. If you and I, who love darkness, love lies, Christ haters, Christ rejectors, every one of us, 
that if we sit here as believers this morning, it's nothing less than a miraculous work of God Almighty. That's what we're to understand. And nobody teaches that as plainly as John does in his Gospel of John. We'll see it as we go further. But oh, my friend, that's who will believe. But what he says before us is who must believe? He that would have life. He must. Let us pray. Father, help us to comprehend what you're saying here to us. To get something, just a notion, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, your Son. And may that glimpse, Father, overwhelm us. May it carry us away. And may it shake us to the root of our soul and foundation. That we see the issues that He is either, either the Son sent from heaven with the very words of God. Or he is a liar and a deceiver. We can't have it both ways. We can't have him, Father, as just a good teacher, a good religious leader. That he is either worthy of all our devotion or none. All our obedience or none. All our trust or none. And Father, we must come down on one side or the other of that question. In fact, we already have, Father, according to your word, come down. But until we turn and until we receive, we have all rejected. We've hated the light, even the very light, if not of the gospel, the light of creation itself. We have suppressed, we've closed our eyes and stopped our ears to the testimony of the very light of nature and creation, even to the testimony of our own bodies, the miracle that we are, our own consciousness, our own existence. We explain it by this or that, anything. But that we are accountable and responsible to a God who is in the heavens. Father, just bring this powerfully to bear upon the conscience of anyone here who knows not Christ today. May you give them no rest, no peace, until they set their seal to the fact that God is true and that Jesus is indeed the Son of God they would devote their soul to Him. Work in our midst. May the Spirit come and magnify Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen.